Good morning, everybody. And if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn back into that book of Acts where we've been trekking along and following the journeys of the Apostle Paul and his team in that early church, the expansion of the gospel, the expansion of the church. It's the history of our, our church, the, the, our forefathers, if you would, of the faith. And it's good to see how God worked. And as you're turning, I'll just, uh, how many of you were born, were not born in 1972 or born after 1972? How many of you were born after 1972? My goodness. Okay, so I'm, I'm feeling like the ancient of days already. Um, reason I say that is because it was the year 1972 when what would be one of the inaugural, uh, Disaster drama movies. This is when the trend actually began. It was, I remember back in 1972. And, and the movie that hit the big screen at that time, I'll never forget seeing it for the first time, was called The Poseidon Adventure. It starred some of the big uh, Hollywood names like uh, Ernest uh, Borgnine and Gene Hackman and Shelley Winters and Red Buttons. It was a fictional story, of course, but it was about this ocean, luxurious ocean liner that was steaming across the ocean. And lo and behold, it was blindsided by this enormous tsunami wave. And, and it flipped that massive ship completely upside down. So the top side of the ship was completely submerged under the ocean. And it was floating out there with its belly up towards the sky. And of course, the drama was on. As that uh, handful of, of survivors that, that survived that cataclysmic, uh, terrible disaster were trying to make their way towards the top, which was the bottom uh, of the ship, you know, going through the different chambers and, and all the floods and all the bodies and everything. It was just one of those kinds of things. It was just one of those nail-biting type movies where, you know, just kept you on the edge of the seat like, oh no, what more could happen now? And here's this big ship flipped. Upside down. I thought about it. That took a lot of doing for the, the people that did the set to hang all this stuff upside down and, and flood it with water and all that. But, but it's Hollywood. And so that was before the days of computer, uh, you know, uh, generated uh, images and things like that. So that was really, uh, it, it, really amazing. Uh, but the image of that ship turned completely upside down still is printed on my brain. I want you to listen to these words, out of, not out of Acts, but certainly by the Apostle Paul. Taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, would you agree with me that these sound like the words... Of a man on a mission? Would you agree that these words sound like the words of a, of, of a man who was determined and absolutely committed in the fulfillment of the mission to which he was called? These are the words of a man who led a team, and we know that team consisted of uh, Silas and Timothy and occasionally Luke. And the Apostle Paul and his team were absolutely committed to their God-given mission of reaching the world with the good news, the great news, the awesome news of the gospel. That was what they were sent out into the world to do, and they were determined and committed and dedicated to do that. So much so that they earned the unrivaled 
reputation of being those men who are turning the world upside down. This morning I want to direct your attention to Acts chapter 17. We'll look first of all beginning in verse 1. And as we read this, I want you to just follow along with how God is leading the Apostle Paul. You may recall he's on his second missionary journey. He's just left the city of Philippi where he was arrested unjustly, unlawfully, beaten unmercifully, unlawfully, thrown into prison. And God set him free through an earthquake, he and Silas, but not before God allowed them to share the gospel with the jailer and his family. And they came to Christ. You see, no matter what the circumstances are, somebody that is on mission looks beyond the circumstances and keeps their eye on the mission that they're called to. So, Acts chapter 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So we see God working as a result of the preaching of the gospel there in that synagogue. And and you'll note a trend on Paul's part. He goes into a community, looks for a synagogue, finds the Jews, begins with the Jews, but expands the preaching to anyone. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or not. It could be the Greeks or, uh, you know, it could be those who are, are, are pagans. It doesn't matter. Paul's preaching to anyone, but he starts with the Jews. In verse 5, But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, obviously one of the converts who now was housing Paul and Silas and Timothy, And sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, and here it is. These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here too. Now I ask you this morning, where in our state, or where in our nation, is there evidence of the church turning this world upside down. Can you think of any single incident where a body of believers so absolutely dedicated to the Lord are turning the world upside down? Now, I can easily show you plenty of examples, (coughs) tragically, of churches that are being turned upside down by the pagan, sinful culture in which we live. Churches that have abandoned the inerrant Word of God. Churches that have abandoned their strong historical stance on traditional Christian principles and strong doctrine. Churches that have abandoned their stance on moral, ethical causes. Why? Because the world has turned the church upside down. What used to be important for the church is no longer the priority. It's more like a social club. It's more like a Christianized YMCA 
the churches have abandoned the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God and, and, and being a strong bastion of, of, uh, of support for, for ethical causes and moral causes for the sake of appealing to the culture around them. Churches are being turned upside down, but uh, where are the churches that are turning the culture upside down? Where are the disciples? Where are the Christians who are turning their families upside down? Who are turning their neighborhoods upside down? Who are turning their workplaces or their schools upside down? I ask you, where are they? We see an evidence right here, so much so that the, that, that the whole town was crying out. These, these men, the reputation they have, they're here. They're, they're turning the world upside down and now they're here. I want you to see this morning as you examine this passage and these, this narrative of the missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, I want you to ask yourself, Lord, what part am I doing in turning my world upside down for Christ? What impact am I making upon the world in which I live? Did not Jesus say to you and me that we should... Obey the Lord and follow His commandments and practice His teachings so much so that we would be the light of the world? That we'd be the salt of the earth? Where are we in this process of turning the world upside down? I want you to see a few characteristics that emerge in this narrative that I believe identify disciples who turn their world upside down. First of all, I believe disciples who turn the world upside down are absolutely committed to sharing the gospel message. If you go back to chapter 17, verse 1 through 4, just as I explained to you, there was Paul. Now, I, I remind you, still fresh in his mind and probably still sensitive on his body are the marks from the beatings that he just received. He probably still has shackle marks, he and, si- and Silas, on their ankles where be, they were locked in chains uh, and, and bonds uh, in a prison cell. Don't you know this is still fresh on their mind as they're fleeing from Philippi and the persecution they experienced there? And here they arrive in Thessalonica and what's the first thing he does? He doesn't send scouts around to say, do they like me or don't they like me? He goes right in and picks up where he left off. Why? Because he's committed to the gospel message. How do we know that? Because Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, he says, you know, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. First to the Jew and then to the Greek, Paul says. But listen to what Paul also says over in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, talking about this gospel message. Paul said in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Corinthians, he said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul understood the power of the gospel to absolutely transform a person's life, change them into a brand new creature in Christ. He knew the power of the gospel, and he knew that he was called to preach that. And so those who are committed to share in the gospel message are in obedience to the Lord's mandate. They do it in obedience to the Lord's mandate. This is what the Lord called us to do. He didn't say build big buildings and have fancy programs and go out there and try to imitate the, 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 the entrapments of the culture. He says we are to be about the business of making disciples. He says go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things what I have commanded you. And he says, lo, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the earth. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, He says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus gave us a mandate. And that is to take the gospel message out beyond our houses, out beyond our churches, out into the community where people are literally dying. Dying and on their way to hell because they are in need to hear this great gospel message. It was a, it's a message that is given to all followers with no exception. Whether you're called to be a preacher or a missionary or a layman out in the community, wherever you may be, this is the mandate. And disciples who turn their world upside down are absolutely committed to this. This was specifically a call to Paul that Jesus gave him after striking him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15 when God was sending Ananias to, to commission Saul of Tarsus who would soon be the Apostle Paul. He said this, Jesus speaking, says, Go, for he... Paul, or Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, speaking of the Jews. But listen to what he says also. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew with his calling, not only was he given a mandate to preach the gospel, but he understood that this was not going to be a comfort zone. This was not going to be an easy path. Paul understood that Jesus was calling him to suffer many things. And indeed, the Apostle Paul did suffer a great loss. He suffered the loss of reputation. He suffered the loss of possessions. He he suffered the loss of probably family relationships. Not to mention that he suffered probably like few have suffered physically for the cause of the gospel. Not many of us have been stoned nearly to death. I'm talking about people throwing rocks at you. I'm not talking about illegal drugs. I'm talking about being stoned by rocks to almost to the point of death. Not many of us have been beaten by rods 39 times, multiple times. Not many of us have been thrown into prison simply because we are teaching and sharing the gospel with somebody. No, I don't think there's been anybody that probably has suffered to the limit that Paul did. But that's what Jesus told him up front. I'm calling you to take the message, but I'm calling you to understand this will involve suffering. Those who are committed to sharing the gospel of the, uh, of, of the gospel message do this in obedience to the Lord's mandate, but we do it. The motive behind it is not because we have this uh, heavy-handed, uh, iron-fisted uh, uh, God up above ready to, 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 to pound us if we don't obey Him. No, the motive is not fear. The motive for sharing the gospel and turning our world upside down is love. It's That's at the heart of the gospel message. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever would believe upon Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so with compassion, we take this message to unsaved sinners. That's the purpose of it. I like what the Apostle Paul was saying in Romans chapter 10. And you you capture the the heart of this in Romans chapter 10. Paul says in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Do you hear Paul's heart? He says, I love the Jews. I love my people. I want the reason I'm sharing the gospel. And Paul says, I want to see them saved. That was at 
the heart of the reason that Paul was sharing. And over in that same chapter, chapter 10 of Romans and verse 14, Paul gives you the essence of, of the motive of love that drives people to take the gospel out there to turn the world upside down. He said in verse 14, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Let me tell you something. If you don't think when you go out to knock on doors or take the opportunity in your workplace or your school or wherever God may have you, that it's a beautiful thing that you're doing when you bring the gospel to somebody. Let me ask, let me tell you something. You ask a person who has just prayed to receive Jesus Christ, who has just realized that they were bound, uh, hell bound and, and, and shackled to their sins and, and headed for hell. They were condemned to die eternally in the fires of hell and suddenly they heard the good news. You ask them. If they don't love the person who took the time to share the gospel with them. Listen, the sharing of the gospel is an act of love. And Paul and his company were driven by their love for the lost people. No matter whether they were Jews or Greeks, it didn't matter. They were willing to suffer for anyone to hear the gospel. And effective evangelism for you and me today is not a duty. It's an act of love. It's an opportunity. It's a privilege for you and me to share love in a way that, that, that we don't share in any other cycle of life or any other uh, 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 scene of life. When we tell people the good news that will save their souls for eternity, that will gain them entrance into the, the beautiful and perfect setting of heaven, let me tell you something, there's no greater act of love you can do. And when people go motivated with this kind of genuine love for the lost, remembered how it was that God loved us so much that He sent someone to share the gospel with us, then suddenly we realize we have a powerful call on our lives. It's those kind of disciples who are turning the world upside down. Those who are absolutely committed to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, are you? Is this one of the great priorities in your life? Do you wake up in the morning thinking about, Lord, I wonder who you might bring in my path today that I might be able to tell about Jesus? Lord, I wonder if I would have the privilege of being able to share Christ with somebody today that they might be saved from the eternal fires of hell? God, I wonder if I'm the person that you're going to put in the path of some lost sinner who's struggling through life, who's desperate to hear. Lord, I wonder if I'm going to have that opportunity today. It's those kind of disciples that are turning their world upside down. But we need to move on. Because not only are these disciples committed to share the gospel message, but I believe the, the text helps us to see that disciples who turn their world upside down are courageous in the face of adversity. Let's go back to Acts chapter 17 and pick up verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Doesn't this seem to be a pattern? Wherever Paul goes, 
He goes into the synagogue. He innocently preaches the gospel. He presents Christ. He opens their eyes, or the Holy Spirit does, to see with great understanding the truth of the gospel and to be wonderfully saved. Oh, listen, not only just one or two, but multitudes are being saved. Oh, what, what a time for celebration. But right on the heels of that, right on the heels of that, more than once, you'll see where envy raises its ugly head. And it's in the Jews who don't believe. And what do they do? Just like in this situation here. They went out and got a mob. Stirred up a mob. Listen, there are people that still get stirred up in mobs today. We got them all in the streets. All it takes is a few agitators who are motivated by the devil. And boom, you'll have a destructive, murderous mob on your hand. And this was what it was. In verse 6, it talks about, but when they found did not find them, they dragged Jason. And some of the brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason was harbored, uh, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now that's the truth. They didn't lie. And that wasn't a good thing to say in a Roman colony under the rule of Caesar. But that was just what it took to get the crowd incited into a riot. In verse 8, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security, in other words, Jason must have had some money. They put down some bond or deposit and they let him go. In verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they what? Hid? What? Uh, got got a, a posse or got, got security forces to get them out of the, the region? Verse 10, when they got to Berea, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Paul didn't miss a beat because he was courageous in the face of the adversity. You know, I think about when Paul, being a great student of the Scriptures, he understood the Old Testament, he knew the Old Testament figures, he saw the wonderful precedents and examples of courageous men of God that went long before him. I'm sure as Paul faced these adverse situations and dangerous situations because he was faithful to the call, the mission that God had called upon his life, I'm sure that time after time Paul must have thought about great men like Elijah, great men like Jeremiah, Prophets of God, Amos, and even John the Baptist. Men who were willing to stand in the face of evil, wicked kings. And in the face of of false prophets and false religious leaders. And no matter what, stand convicted on the mission that God has given to them. Paul must have drawn support and encouragement from them. Guess what? We can draw sort, we can draw strength and, and, and encouragement as we look back through the history of the church and we see the number of brave men and women who rather than compromise and cave in to the pressures of evil forces around them stood firm on the word of God, even when it cost them their possessions, even when it cost them their very lives. And let me tell you something. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who are right now suffering, not because they're criminals, Many of them are in prison. Many of them have lost their possessions. Some of their families have been sold into slavery. Not because they're uh, unreputable people out there that are causing trouble or breaking the law. Simply because they stand firm on their faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul and his team knew that they could depend on the Lord. That's how Paul was willing and able to be strong in the Lord. I think about over in 2 Corinthians Well, Paul is sharing these words and and you talk about having an understanding of, of suffering and being strong in the Lord. Listen to what Paul says over there 
in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, what ministry? To go and to tell people the good news of the gospel. That was Paul's ministry. He says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. It's interesting, in that same chapter in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 16, Paul says again, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Christian, let me ask you, what does it take to dishearten you? What does it take to cause you to lose heart so that you say, oh, forget it. I'm not going to bother witnessing anymore. They're making fun of me. Or my family, they disregarded me. Or I've lost friends. Or I lost a promotion on the job. Oh, I'm going to give up on this idea of being a faithful witness for the Lord. Paul says, we do not lose heart. He says, we've been stoned, shipwrecked, thrown into prison, beaten. He says, threatened almost to the, you know, to death. And he says, we do not lose heart. I'll tell you what, we need more Christians today who will stand for the Lord no matter what. Paul and his team knew that they could depend on the Lord. They could depend on the Lord to enable them to complete their mission. They could depend on the Lord to deliver them even through death. Listen to Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to what Paul says. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says, listen, come what may, I'm still a winner. Isn't that what he said in Philippians in chapter 1, verse 21? He says, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you're a follower of Christ and you've had the privilege of being able to serve the Lord and He's called you out there into the world to serve Him, Paul says, come death or life, it doesn't matter. The Lord is with us. Death didn't scare Paul. It didn't scare him. He said in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 38, Now I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And when you know the Lord that well and you have faith that gives you the confidence that no matter what the adversity is, we can stand firm because our God is going to cause us to, to, to accomplish what He's called us to, to do. And He will be with us and not even death can separate us from Him. Faithful disciples today have that same assurance. I think about I was on the... Home, uh, North American, I'm sorry, International Missions Board website yesterday and looking at some of the prayer concerns for missionaries. And I, I came across this one prayer request talking about the, uh, people in, in uh, Gujarat, uh, India. And they said many pastors in Gujarat are experiencing persecution because of their commitment to share the gospel. In one village, a pastor has been threatened by his own uncle, a man who practices dark magic and is known in the village to be an evil man. Many times believers will be denied entrance into the villages by others like this dark magician. Please pray for God's protection for believers when they go out to share the truth of salvation. 
Let me tell you something. They're still going out. It's dangerous out there, but they're still going out. Do you realize just about in every place where you've heard about terrorist attacks or some uh, terrible disaster, do you understand we probably have Southern Baptist international missionaries who are there, living there, some with their children. They have immersed themselves in the culture where these terrorists are and where terrorists are attacking. And they know how dangerous this world is. They know the adversaries at work. They know the risk involved. But you know something? I've yet to see on the computer from the International Mission Board any report about a flood of Southern Baptist missionaries turning tail and coming home. Why? Because they're on a mission. They've been called. They've been called to do just what Paul was called to do. Take the gospel out to all the world, no matter what. And even in the face of dangerous situations, know that our God is able. He's able to deliver them. He's able to protect them. He's able to provide for them. And we've got brothers and sisters in the Lord in the path of terrorist organizations like ISIS or Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda or Taliban. Let me tell you something. They are there. They are serving the Lord. And they're trusting in the face of adversity. And we can completely rely on the Lord. Disciples who turn their world upside down are men and women who not only quote Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but these are Christians who live Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Listen, we realize as believers, we realize the words that the Apostle Paul gave us in Ephesians chapter 6 when he was writing back to the church at Ephesus. And these words still very much apply to our culture, our world today. Paul says, we do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of, of the darkness of this age, against a spiritual host of evilness. In heavenly places, Paul says, there's war all over the globe. It's spiritual warfare. Who do you think is motivating these evil terrorist organizations that, that, that are so barbaric and, and so dangerous? Satan. We're in spiritual warfare, but now's not the time to raise the white flag and to retreat to safety. Now's the time to lay claim to promises like the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm no match for Satan. I'm no match for his demonic uh, uh, followers. I'm no match for uh, spiritual enemies. You know, I, uh, against those forces, I'm powerless. I'm weak. But I'll tell you what. In Christ, I can do all things. In the power of Christ, we can stand against adversity. And that's what you see the Apostle Paul and his team doing time and time again. They were not only committed to the message of the gospel, but they were also courageous in the face of adversary or adversity. And finally, I want you to see as we conclude this portion of Acts, looking at chapter 17 and verse 11, I want you to see that those disciples who turned the world upside down are committed to the gospel message and courageous in the face of adversity, but they're content to trust the results to God. Going back to chapter 17, we pick up in verse 11. These were fair-minded, 
than these were more fair-minded, speaking of the believers, or speaking of the people, and Jews particularly in, in Berea, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. I thought it was interesting that Luke made sure that he inserted that footnote there. What does it mean to be fair-minded? I'll tell you what it means. It means that they were eager to hear. These were, these were people who were already being motivated by the Spirit of God to search the Script. They were hungry for the Word of God. So should we be. Peter tells us in his epistle in 1 Peter, he says over there in, in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, he says, Be like newborn babes and earnestly desire the milk of the Word that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation if you have tasted the goodness of the Lord. Are you hungry for the Word of God? Are you eagerly searching the, the truth of the Scriptures? Let me just say this. You know, one of the reasons that we find so many churches getting in trouble and, and following after some of the false teachers out there is because Christians have gotten lazy. Christians are not scrutinizing what is being taught to them or preached to them from the Word of God. It, it is an absolute atrocity to know the kind of biblical illiteracy that exists out there in the pulpits and, and in the pews of churches. And you wonder why the culture are, are, are growing. You wonder why some of these false teachers, even with their big painted on smiles and flashy hairdos, can, can have throngs of people. Because people don't even search the Scriptures to test what they're being taught or preached as if it's true. Not the Bereans. And you know what? You don't see any complaint from the Apostle Paul saying, What's the matter? Don't y'all trust me? Why are you looking at the Scriptures? Why are you going back to the scrolls? Why are you searching the Scriptures? To No, I believe Paul, like any good-minded preacher, would say, Praise the Lord. Welcome. And listen, I welcome you. And I know I speak for the pastor team and also for all the other preachers in this church. We welcome you to search the Scriptures. We invite you not to just sit there and listen to us, but open up the Word of God. It doesn't offend me if I see you flipping pages of your Bible, checking references and things. Listen, search the Scriptures and know that that which is being taught to you, that which is being preached to you, is nothing but the Word of God. And I believe... Luke was commending the Bereans at that very point. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul made this observation in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. It, you know, at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, it, Paul picked up on some division in the church. Some of the people were allying themselves with, with Apollos, a, a, a great preacher at that time. Some were falling in behind Paul. Some, so, so there was division in the church. Some of the members were saying, well, we, we are followers of uh, Apollos. And some said, oh, we're followers of Peter. And then they, oh, we're followers of Paul. And Paul says, stop that. There is no division in the body of Christ. There's not Paul's followers and Peter's followers and Apollos. There's only Christ. There's only one head. Follow Him. And on the point of salvation, you don't ever hear Paul saying, well, they're in Berea, they're in Thessalonica, they're in Lystra, they're in Iconium, or they're in Thessalonica. I saved so many. Makes my skin crawl when I hear preacher brothers talk about, well, I got so many saved on this mission trip. Or I get so many saved on Sunday. I just want to, it's everything I can do to keep from saying, brother, you ain't saved nobody. Pardon the English. And you never will. And Paul realized that. And that's why there in, in, in 1 Corinthians, 
when Paul is telling us in chapter 3, listen to what he says, and this is important. He says, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each of you. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Who does the saving, ladies and gentlemen? Is it the Sunday school teacher or the Christian growth group teacher? Is it the deacon? Is it the pastor? Who does the saving? Jesus does the saving. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Only the Spirit of God working to convict a lost soul of their lostness and their need for salvation. Only Jesus saves. We preach, we teach, we witness, we share, but Jesus does the saving. And so Paul was content to trust the results to God. Paul humbly acknowledged his role, the role that he played in salvation. He understood that he was just an instrument in the hands of God. And every one of you, when you go out, whether you participate in uh, Operation Love Your Neighbor, and I hope you will, as we continue to fan out through our community and, and meet our neighbors and, and, and share with them, first of all, that we, we, are, we, we love them in the Lord, we're praying for them, but also where the opportunity may avail. If we sense that somebody doesn't know the Lord, listen, we're going to tell them. We're going to tell them the truth, that the, that the Bible says they're sinners like everybody else. And that their sins will condemn them to hell for eternity. But God loves them. And He loves them so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for their sins. And if they confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they, they will be saved. But let me tell you something, it stops there. It stops there because we don't save them from there. We may plant or we may water, but it's all up to the Lord to save. And Paul realized that. That's why in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, For by grace... Whose grace? God's grace. For by grace through faith are you saved, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from who? The preacher? From the church? From the denomination? No! It is a gift from God. And Paul understood that all he was was an instrument in the hands of God to bring salvation to lost souls. So the same thing would apply. He understood that he was an ambassador, as he said in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He's an ambassador for Jesus Christ, and so are we. When we go out to share with our neighbors, let me tell you something. We go as ambassadors. But do you understand that an ambassador from a nation doesn't have any authority or power on their own? They can't implement sanctions. They can't declare war. They have no power. They have no authority. They are ambassadors. They are representing. They are delegates of the king. Delegates of the president. Delegates representing the nation. So when you and I go out to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, you don't go out there with some mystical power that you can just sprinkle water on them and wave a cloth over their head and say, Hallelujah, I've just saved you. No, you're an ambassador. You have been given delegated authority by the Lord Jesus Christ to say to somebody, if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and, and, and ask the Lord to be the Lord of your life on the authority of the Word of God, I can tell you that Jesus Christ will save you for eternity and your home will be in heaven. The problem is, too many Christian ambassadors are not going out. Too many ambassadors are sitting in their living rooms on their lazy boys or their reclining sofas or laying catch potato style and they're watching television when they need to be out there as ambassadors sharing the message that they've been given to tell people about. 
So many people will say, or some people will say, well, you know, Pastor, I don't like to, I don't like to witness. I don't like to, you know, I get nervous because I'm just afraid people won't listen to me. I'm afraid they, they'll reject me. Listen, if you just ask the Lord to help you, to give you the words to say, the love to convey, you don't have to worry about whether they receive what you're saying or reject what you're saying. That's not up to you. They're not rejecting you. And they're not accepting you. When they choose to accept what you tell them, they are accepting Jesus Christ. If they slam the door in your face, or they get up from the coffee table, or get up from the break room table, or get up from the classroom and walk out on you, they're not turning their back on you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. You don't have anything to hang your head over. You don't need to feel all rejected and, 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 and put down and, and sad. Oh yeah, you, we need to be sad because anytime somebody rejects the gospel, it's a terrible Tragic, sad situation. But don't take it personal. Because as Paul realized, the results, the results rest with the Lord. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul is now in Athens, but not before he and his team are leaving in their path a world absolutely turned upside down. People who were lost and caught up in wickedness and immorality and paganism are now gloriously and wonderfully saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the amazing grace of God. Families like the jailer at Philippi, whole families have been absolutely transformed for the glory of God and now have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and the shackles of the devil into the kingdom of light and are now adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Folks, listen, that turns a world upside down. Oh, I pray for revival such as swept through the country of Wales hundreds of years ago. There was such a great revival. There was such a great movement of the Spirit of God. And, 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 and people began to sense their calling to get out of the churches and to go out there and to share the good news of the gospel and to talk to their neighbors and their co-workers and the community that we're told that they're in the Welsh community that, they were, that crime just bottomed out. They, they, they closed down the saloons. They closed down the brothels. They had to close down the bars because there was no business. They laid off policemen because there was nobody to arrest. They said even in the coal mines that they had trouble because the mules didn't understand the clean language now of the miners. They were used to the cussing. They had to retrain the mules. Oh, to God that we would see such a great movement that God would move upon a church somewhere in this country and I pray it would be right here at the corner of Highway 109 and Gumtree Road that God's Spirit would settle upon Christians to realize we're not here just to be a comfortable country club. We're here as disciples of Jesus Christ given a bold and powerful mission to go out there and to turn our world upside down for the cause of Christ. But to do that, we've got to be committed to the gospel message We've got to be courageous, no matter what the adversity is. And we've got to be content that if we're going to go and share, we'll leave the results to God. We'll trust Him to accomplish what He wants to do in us personally and in the life of this church. 
and beyond.